Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the Indian Religions Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and then today I have the pleasure of speaking with a very special guest with uh, Jacob Kyle, who is the founder and director of Embodied Philosophy. Jacob, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Raj. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure, and I'm having this this vague deja vu, but our, our roles are reversed because I was on your podcast, I believe, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Yes, you were. And it was quite a popular episode, actually. We got quite a few uh, shares of the quotes from your episode. Lots of people really jiving with the wisdom that you shared. So thank you so much for bringing that. Well, I don't quite remember sharing any of the quotes that I saw, but I'm sure they're mine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm positive they're mine. I might have judged some of them for grammatical correctness. (laughs) Oh, great. Thank you so much. But I I I think I preserved the essence of the quotes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um, Jacob, there'll be a number of listeners who know exactly what embodied philosophy is, um, and some who uh, may not have the faintest idea. So tell us, what is embodied philosophy? Uh, well, embodied philosophy is an online educational platform for contemplative studies, and we publish a uh, a range of content from online uh, educational materials to a quarterly journal called Tarka. We also offer uh, monthly online courses in either Dharma studies or yoga philosophy. Um, we kind of use those terms interchangeably now. And also mind-body studies, um, which tends to be a little more focused on the innovative connections and integrations of kind of ancient indigenous contemplative wisdom with modern approaches to psychotherapy and somatic attunement and various kind of wellness uh, practices. Whereas the Dharma studies track, as we call it, is a little more focused on kind of traditional um, understandings of the teachings, investigations of, of texts and that sort of thing. And so we publish in those two arenas and we, again, like I said, offer courses and we also offer two certificate programs in those two areas. So we offer, actually, we're about to start two new certificate programs in September, one in mind-body therapy and one in yoga philosophy. So that's really kind of, um, and then I also, as you mentioned, I host a podcast called Chitheads, which actually is one of the original offerings of embodied philosophy. And all of the rest of it's kind of just built gradually over the last six years. Well, it's certainly a, a, a robust and rich uh, platform um, in its current state. Um, and the podcast I infer has been around for some time since uh, mine was apparently number 136. Um, but tell us a little bit about, uh, we see the oak tree. Tell us about the acorn. Like, how did you start off? What, you know, how did this, what happened? Yeah, well, I mean, it comes, I guess, out of my own personal journey a bit, as so many projects do, obviously. And at the time, so it was at the time that I started Embodied Philosophy, I had just finished a graduate program in philosophy, Western philosophy, um, and more specifically, continental philosophy at the New School for Social Research in New York. And I had been intending to complete a PhD in philosophy and become a professor. And I was on that whole academic track. And I became very disillusioned in that experience um, at that particular, in that particular program, at that particular school, 
I became disillusioned with the whole kind of project of what I took to be kind of academic Western philosophizing. And I think in retrospect now, I often say that I was looking for a spiritual solution and I thought it existed in the upper echelons of academia, but of course it doesn't <laughs> as, as most people who have, you know, completed PhDs or done advanced graduate work know. Uh, and, and so I was very disillusioned by that. And I realized that my fundamental motivation in studying philosophy was to uh, acquire or to realize or to understand something more viscerally, more deeply, more contemplatively. And, and, and then at the same time, I was also uh, deeply embedded in the yoga asana community in New York. I became a yoga asana teacher in 2011. Um, and I was equally dismayed by what I took to be the um, fluffy distillation of yogic wisdom um, and the kind of new ageification, if I can invent a word, of yoga philosophy. And also the appropriation of yoga philosophy in such a way that it would kind of reinforce our own cultural assumptions um, and, and predispositions. Whereas, you know, for those that really take yogic teaching seriously, um, it's quite the opposite of that, right? You're, it's, a, it's a trajectory of challenging one's assumptions, one's identifications. And so I was sort of in between these two spaces of, of scholarship and my yoga asana practice. And I was learning more and more um, and hearing more and more about yoga philosophy, studying it more, and just realizing that it, within the yoga world, the, the kind of modern yoga world, especially yoga asana world, there wasn't enough of a connection to the deeper teachings. And because those were really inspiring me, and because I was still interested in philosophy, uh, this term embodied philosophy just kind of emerged out of that experience because I had on the one hand, the disembodied philosophy of, of academia. And then on the other hand, there, you know, I had this, um, this practice focused um, yoga asana community experience that was not really going very deep. So I, I wanted to bring those two together. And then at that time, I think also there was really no um, platform for rigorous um, uh, scholarship and more kind of deeper explorations of yogic wisdom that was accessible for practitioners. It was either that fluffy stuff or it was kind of obtuse theorizing or really um, you know, specialized scholarship on the other hand. So there wasn't really this kind of um, in-between space. And now, of course, there are many, many in-between spaces online, and it's really emerged um, and evolved quite beautifully. But at that time, it seemed like it was a void. And, and I you know, started in body philosophy really to fill that void. So what sorts of um, uh, scholars, seekers, practitioners, what sorts of folks would you say um, might be most drawn to or might most benefit from the offerings at Embodied Philosophy? What kind of scholars would benefit? What's, what sort of folks, whether seekers, scholars, practitioners? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I feel like you're, you're sort of getting at the term that kind of guides the whole platform, uh, um, which is scholar-practitioner, right? The, those scholars, I, I define it, it's defined in many ways, obviously, by many different people who identify with this kind of emerging term of the scholar-practitioner. But for me, it's always meant, um, or it has evolved to mean, depending on how you look at it, um, a scholar who practices. And by that, I mean a scholar who is anchored and rooted um, primarily or firstly in their own contemplative practice. And that sort of feeds and nourishes their scholarship. And there is no ultimate distinction. So there's this primary synergy that's acknowledged between knowledge and experience. Um, and experiential knowledge is not denigrated, um, you know, in a kind of below what is um, propped up to be the, the, the sort of primary mode of knowledge, which would be kind of, you know, the objectified notion of knowledge that's become sort of characteristic of the, the modern academy. Um, so I would say you know, there's a lot of bias, as you know, and so many um, people know in in modern academia against experiential knowledge. Uh, you know, within the the context of the study of religion, there's a lot of um, prejudice against um, uh, tainting one's scholarship 
by the rituals and practices of, of, of these religious or spiritual or esoteric traditions. And so I would say that the platform is really designed for those who are trying to move past that um, arbitrary and ultimately quite Western divide that's been created between um, knowledge and experience. So overarchingly, uh, an integration of, of spirituality and scholarship in some sense. Yes, that's a great summary. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, much of what you say deeply resonates without question. Um, it, it's at the heart of attention that I've um, lived for all of my adult life, starting off as sort of a, a, a Western-trained rationalist uh, uh let's say a deeply philosophical even spiritual person to now having all kinds of training, academic, lineal, and, you know, integrating them and, and, and presenting them. And, and while I've been teaching courses online for about five years, I've only recently founded the school and really everything you say rings true. You know, it's probably a slightly different niche, but it's overall, you know, like uh, slightly different species, same genus, right? Like overarchingly people are, drawn to platforms where they can um you know there's rigor there in that we can understand the world empirically and objectively that's interlaced with uh soulfulness with experience mm -hmm. uh, with these two orders of reality or these different aspects of selves and and it's delicate because on the one hand um Typically, when you're really good at one, it eclipses the other. Or folks who fancy themselves very spiritual, anything goes and everything is timeless and nothing is from culture and history. And and um, let's just uh, innovate however we feel like willy-nilly. So, you know, there really is a tension there. So uh, much of what you say uh, deeply resonates. Um, tell us a bit about this, this Tarka journal. You know, mm. what's that like or how long has it been around? Yeah, so Tarka, um, which is a term that at least for me, uh, I study with Paul Muller Ortega, who I consider sort of, you know, an exemplar scholar practitioner, um, uh, or an exemplary scholar practitioner. He, uh, I study Ab Abhinavagupta's work with him, and uh, as you probably know, Abhinavagupta um, posits Tarka as the highest form of yoga. So there's something a little bit um, ironic about the fact that, you know, Tarka is meant to be a beyond discursive sort of knowledge or discernment, right? Um, it's, it's more than simply intellectual knowledge um, or intellectual discernment or intellectual logic. And so, and then we've titled this journal, which basically you can't really get much past the intellectual um, when you're, you, you know, when you're espousing the written word. Um, but it was meant to be a journal that was opening up, again, this experimental arena for scholars to explore their relationship with practice, for us to explore perhaps con topics or intersections that would be taboo to the traditional academy, um, and to look at contemporary issues from a contemplative perspective and not um, simply, for example, I don't know, read the traditions themselves from the vantage point of only those contemporary principles or ethics and vice versa. So for example, we you know, are doing an, uh, about to do a issue on queer Dharma, which has been actually quite difficult because we've recognized that um, there's been very little work done, uh, very little um, discussion happening around that intersection for a variety of reasons that I'm, you know, sure you're quite privy to. Um, so it's been, but it's, but that is part of kind of the goal of the journal has been to, to open up conversations at different intersections that haven't really been possible before, or are sort of outside the orbit of, of, of what is considered appropriate to talk about within, um, intellectual conversations. Um, and really just kind of a, um, an experimental journal for the scholar practitioner. Originally, we started with an issue on bhakti. Uh, we've done four issues. We're about to do the fifth um, ba on bhakti, on illusion, on ecology, on death, 
And then we retroactively, before we publish on death, we retroactively publish an issue zero on the scholar practitioner because I felt like it was important to have the first issue kind of start with basically um, arguments, justifications, and explanations around what this concept of the scholar practitioner is and why, you know, we should be concerned about it or why we should um, explore it. So uh, even though it wasn't the first issue, it's issue zero. So technically it's the first issue. And then, like I said, we have another issue coming out on uh, on queer dharma. And then we just did a, a conference on the topic of spiritual citizenship. So we have an issue titled on spiritual citizenship coming. And then we also have one on pedagogy uh, coming a bit later and also on Tantra. So lots of topics <laughs> um, uh, across a range of, of, um, of fields and traditions and perspectives. And it's been important to me as uh, the editorial director, I work very closely with uh, some obviously colleagues who, who help create the journal. Um, but it's been important that we equally represent you know, kind of scholars who maybe don't rec uh, um, necessarily uh, identify as practitioners always, but mostly it's scholar practitioners. And then we also have um, uh, articles written by people that are more on the devotional side of things or devotional leaders who would, you know, identify more with traditional paramparas rather than, um, you know, scholarly academic um, environments. So for those listening who would be very interested in this journal, because obviously all of those topics sound quite fascinating, um, how does one go about getting their hands on the journal? And uh, the flip side of that is um, for the scholars um, who listen to the podcast, um, uh, of which there are a great many, it seems, <laughs> um, how might one um, be able to contribute to this journal? Yes, thank you for that question. Um, we are always trying to build an audience of uh, writers um, or a, um, a team, a larger team of writers. We're always trying to build on that because, especially as you shift topics, you know, not all of that, you know, core team necessarily feels like they have something to say on a given topic. So we're always looking to expand our pool of writers for the journal. And the way you get your hands on it is through a subscription. So if you go to embodyphilosophy.com forward slash Tarka, there is a, um, an ability to either subscribe to the print journal, which comes out again, four times a year. I'm not sure if I mentioned that it's quarterly. And then, uh, and then there's an option to also get it digitally. So you would get it either as a PDF download or with a basic membership to embodied philosophy, you can essentially get access to all of the articles just as in a web format, essentially. But the issue itself, I'm, I'm very proud of the, the, the aesthetic of the print issue. It's a very beautiful journal um, designed by a close friend and colleague, Ryan Lemaire, and it's absolutely gorgeous to, as a physical document to hold in your hands. So um, I would definitely encourage people to get the print if they, if they can. And I think at some point we're gonna talk about a, a discount um, code that your listeners can use and it does apply to the the digital subscription of Tarka as well. I'll re restate this at the end of the podcast for convenience, mm -hmm. but um, also state it now since everyone's on the edge of their seat. <laughs> um, um, uh, Jacob has been kind enough to to provide for for this audience a code, uh, which simply is Indian Religions, all capital letters, twenty five, Indian Religions, twenty five. Um, for a discount on membership. Yeah, basically any any membership. The, the digital membership to Tarka, which is actually a separate membership, and then we also have three tiers of membership, uh, basic, premium, and unlimited. And basic gives you access to articles. Premium gives you access to articles plus EPTV. And then um, unlimited gives you access to all of that that I just mentioned, plus all of our courses. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Oh, and I, I didn't mention, that. sorry, I, I meant to say to contribute, there is a submissions um, link on the website. If you scroll down to the bottom of the page, there's a submissions link and it takes you to a submissions page where you can um, basically propose articles to, and that will be sent to our um, editorial staff. In terms of the, the, the curriculum at Embodied Philosophy, I mean, that must be sort of a, a, an evolution, uh, a process that's ever evolving. Um, 
but can you give us a sense of what that's like? Are there particular courses that uh, you're looking to build out or streams or areas? You know, you say a bit about um, the overarching curriculum there or perhaps even the future thereof. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this is an ongoing kind of question, I, and I think it is um, a constant process of refinement for us and certainly for me um, how to um, develop and build curriculum in a way that really does service to, you know, principles of educating people in what they need to know to have a comprehensive understanding of something. And then also having to kind of play this game of, of giving people what they want, right? Because in order to survive online, people actually have to enroll in the courses that you create. And sometimes the courses that people want are not necessarily maybe what ideally, you know, you would you would publish. So, so I, the way that we've kind of responded to this is we, we tend to, um, uh, focus the more popular courses in what we call the wisdom school, which is these monthly courses. So we tend to choose courses that we think will really, um, garner a large audience because, and then the strategy really is that then they would be interested in, in kind of diving deeper into a more refined curriculum process. And that's where the certificates come in. So right now, as I said, we have two certificate programs and those curriculums have been developed very carefully and refined over the last few years um, by the, the, the faculty of the, of the two programs. And, and that really is, is trying to um, walk our students through um, uh, on, from either direction, mind-body therapy or yoga philosophy, through a process that's really going to give them a comprehensive understanding of, of you know the the tradition of the traditions of yoga philosophy because of course there are many and we take a historical approach uh, to that um, although I think there's actually more radical methodologies and pedagogies of approach beyond the merely kind of linear historical um, but that's the one we're working with at the moment and then the curriculum on the mind body therapy side is is being kind of rebooted and reimagined, um, based on a new director that we have in that department. Um, so, so the, the wisdom school courses again are, are like, we're doing a a course on the Tibetan book of the dead, which is a, a fabulous, um, course taught by a wonderful teacher. It's doing very, it's doing rather well. Um, but there, we, I could imagine doing more courses in Buddhism. Definitely. Um, you and I talked about uh, doing a course that I think would be a wonderful offering there. And so, yeah, so there's a, we also survey our audience. I should have mentioned that as well. We survey, um, our audience about, we essentially give them a range of topics and ask them to vote on what they'd like to see. And, and that gives us kind of a better idea of, of what people are really interested in learning, at least, you know, in a four module course. I'm not sure if that answered your question, but of course, of course it did. That's always the scenic route. And my questions are always intended to be more um, 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 generative than anything. So mm-hmm. ask a question, see what comes out and then see what comes pops into my head next. Um, it's, it's clear. Um, it's clear. It's, it's, it's clear from the, uh, the brand and, and, and the curriculum that obviously, um, embodied experience is important. You know, lived experience, uh, uh, it's also clear speaking to you that that's that plays a, a huge role in your own path in life. Could you say a word about you know your own uh, practice or your own sort of relationship with the with the material or with the various um, uh, I guess practices of yeah. ancient India? What's that like for you? Um, yeah, well, I I study in um, in a tradition of Shaiva Shakta Tantra. Um, and I was initiated into a tantric form of meditation called Nilakanta meditation, really right around the time I started building embodied philosophy. Um, and I often say actually that I think embodied philosophy, the creativity that, that I needed to sort of build it really came from my meditation practice and my relationship with the practice before that was, it was pretty asana centric. I tried meditation a few times, but nothing really stuck. And now having gone through, you know, more of a formal, traditional kind of diksha type of process, I recognize now kind of the power of that event to really 
you know, you could put it in scientific terms, forge a new neural pathway in your brain such that you actually return to your practice. And so ever since I entered study with Paul um, and his school, Blue Throat Yoga, my, my study and my practice has been much more rooted. I have a daily seated meditation practice. I also uh, chant, um, uh, you know, litany chants I was mentioning before we started recording. Um, I, I chant the Ganapati Atarvashirsha Upanishad. Uh, very frequently, at least on a weekly basis. And then I often uh, chant the Sri Rudram, which is, as you know, a longer uh, kind of litany ch chant. And then I have a japa practice that's sort of supplemental, but my core practice is, is meditation. And I, I don't refer, I was saying this to uh, um, someone the other day, I don't refer to my yoga practice. I don't refer to my asana practice as my yoga practice. I refer to my Meditation practice is my yoga practice, and I refer to my asana practice as my asana practice. Um, and I love asana. It's delicious. <laughs> um, I love movement, um, and I love using my body in that way. And I certainly see it as, as, as relevant and related to kind of, you know, the situatedness of my nervous system such that my meditation is more um, uh, anchored and grounded, but I don't see it as my primary practice as I used to. Yeah. yeah, that's that's fascinating. There's um, so last little while I've been teaching at the school, teaching at um, the OCHS at um, Yogic Studies, and invariably people come from a yoga background. So the, the the school that I teach, there's nothing particularly yoga about the school, and yet uh, a large number for for some reason the majority of my students are teachers yoga teachers they have studios that's just who comes they want some sort of an enrichment no doubt probably to pass pass it along which is great and every once in a while i'll get this question so do you have a yoga practice like you know what's your asana you know i day in and day out find myself answering questions about uh, various practices various uh states various etc etc concepts um and what i say is you know if 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 a need arises to work through something and asana would be a useful tool or a specific sequence, then yes, but generally no. And uh, some sort of get what I mean and some don't. I mean, my primary vehicle of spirituality probably would be um, uh, mantra, mm -hmm. right? And far. And it's difficult to convey, especially to somebody who really has their first and most profound spiritual experiences through the asanas. Of course, the asanas are much more than physical, but at the end of the day, the asanas primarily target the anamaya kosha. Mm -hmm. Pranayama, the pranamaya kosha, right? Etc. etc. Right? Um, 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 etc. You know, we could say more about subtle anatomy, perhaps, <laughs> in some other space. Um yeah, asanas can be quite powerful, of course, but uh, I. But there's a top heaviness, uh, in, uh, you know, in asana. It's like, you know, yes, it's in the eight limbs, but if we're focusing 99.9% of our attention on asana, then, and then, you know, point, point, or point zero one on the rest of the limbs, then something's a bit off, you know? Um, so, I mean, and this is, uh, this is an ongoing argument, right? There are people who, who would emphasize, I remember doing an interview with someone who emphasized that, well, yoga has always had these transform transformational moments, always had these kind of renaissances and revolutions and changes. And that's certainly true. Um, but, you know, when it's lost its esoteric core, um, that's where I think there's something problematic when it's become just sort of, you know, yoga is for stress relief. It's sort of been secularized. That to me is the problematic, you know, appropriation, if we're going to use that as sort of a, a lens of critique, is, um, you know, uh, uh, anesthetizing it of its, um, of, of its esoteric power to shift sort of at subtler layers of our experience. And I, I personally just, you know, never experienced that, that sort of um, depth with asana. I felt great. I had great physical experiences. I, I certainly had the yoga buzz that everyone, you know, would talk about, 
for several years. I don't get it as much anymore. <laughs> uh, but I had that for a while and it was really delicious and it made me feel great. And, you know, all of the kind of political anger, especially that I had at the, when I first started practicing asana, started to kind of melt or at least shift um, and not be so kind of toxic in terms of my way of transmitting it um, or channeling it. But it, it didn't take me to the kind of subtle regions of perception that I've been able to um, then integrate back into my daily life as a result of my meditation practice. Yeah, I've, I've had um, I've had a journey with my relationship to that. Uh, in that, I've always, always, uh, even when I was studying with my master when he was alive in Toronto, always been surrounded by yoga practitioners of various stripes. Um, and when I first started teaching publicly, both um, in more spiritual settings and also in continuing studies in 2010. Um, part of what I was doing was going to Toronto YTTs and sharing something of the mythological, theological, philosophical soil, right? Yeah. That that will help you to transplant this 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 yoga tree, if you will, right? Um, and it was very much of the bent that you know yoga is. I mean, yoga is one of the darshanas. Yoga is a, a path out of samsara. It's it's enmeshed in the Indic worldview without question. I've come to this middle ground these days where I understand now and I accept personally that on mass yoga is a four-letter word that means um, pseudo-spiritual exercise, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what yoga is, and that's what a yoga class is, and I've accepted that. Um, there's a technical term yoga. There's maybe uh, resonances with the word for people who are aspirants or interested in a cultural context. But yoga, by and large, right now means um, interesting Indic exercises, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and so there's there's that tension um, for sure. Yet uh, one of the most powerful experiences spiritually one can have is uh, of Indic origin, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, through the recitation of a properly initiated mantra. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is altering, completely yeah. altering. You're, yeah. you're, you, you, are, you are not the same person. Your perspective on reality is not the same after a year. You really start to understand what one means by insight. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Insight beyond the mundane. But... Obviously, I'm preaching to the choir. Yeah, and I think, but I think it's worth kind of you know talking about because I think it's really difficult for our. Uh, when I say our, I mean I'm talking about kind of you know Western culture admitting that there's you know many people find even that word problematic, but um, this idea of kind of a properly initiated mantra, right? We're in a individualistic liberal culture where I should have whatever I want, whatever flavor I want at any given time. You know, everything is a buffet. And therefore, if I go online and find my own mantra and it resonates with me, then that's my mantra, you know, and I will take it and I don't need a teacher. And I, I think we don't understand the, uh, uh, like, or, or, you know, largely there's this inability of just the way that um, our culture uh, thinks about these things. We don't understand the epistemology behind um, an empowered mantra through a lineage or through a kind of initiatory process. And even the word initiation itself, right, is is actually very loaded and, you know, brings up all these images of hazing and, you know, sororities and fraternities and all of that. Um, <laughs> but of course, life is full of initiations. Um, we just don't use the, the word to think about that. And I think that's a problem. I think our inability to kind of understand the power of, of initiatory moments of life and, and kind of the proper ritual embrace of certain things. And I don't mean proper in a kind of puritanical way, as if there's only one way to do something. I just mean that um, some of these things are not held within containers that actually will permit the arising of, of you know, what they're meant to do, what they're meant to accomplish. Let's, uh, one analogy that comes up in the tutorials for the school, for example, is because um, there's lots of questions, lots of earnest questions, and lots of people have had atrocious experiences with so-called teachers and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, 
it's a safe space when you're learning from an online teacher where it's about knowledge expansion more than anything else. But nevertheless, the knowledge is transformative. So there will be some sort of transformational experience happening even by learning about the material. But one analogy that resonates is that you know, we can't just go and help ourselves to whatever prescription drugs we want. There has to be a pharmacist involved or a specialist or a GP. And some practices are like prescription drugs. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, typically, the active ingredient is missing without the diksha, which is exactly why that is the case. Um, But there there are different levels of practices and there are different levels of deriving benefit or or having relationships with, with with mantras mm-hmm. but for, for one who it's a little bit of chicken and egg you need to have the initiation to appreciate the depth of what an initiation is right but but without the mindset um it just won't take root yeah, even if you were exactly. initiated it, it wouldn't take root the the, the without the soil the, how do you how do you implant something Mm-hmm. And so, but it's, that's not for everybody. It, it's not such that that level of initiation or growth or uh, transformation or experience is for everybody. But it is such that that does exist. And the um, sanctity um, 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 uh, of that needs to be acknowledged, right? Needs to be acknowledged. So we need to understand that there are experiences that are beyond what Google taught me about. Right, mm-hmm. and exactly. I think that's why it's great to have platforms. Or Wikipedia, such as, for that matter. Yeah, well, Wikipedia is another another great guru of, of the modern she, world. Yeah, she gurus. <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. Um, so, what's going on with this whole online education world? Uh, schools oh. cropping up. Um, 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 you're doing stuff in embodied philosophy. Like, obviously, you've probably seen a, a massive shift since oh, you yeah. started five years ago. I imagine, I would surmise that things have shifted a great deal since the onset of COVID. I don't know. We haven't talked mm-hmm. about it mm-hmm. for you. What sort of, you know, what are you, you're uniquely positioned to have a perspective on online education, maybe the future thereof, maybe trends, maybe pitfalls, maybe boons. You know, I don't have a particular answer in mind, but I'd love you to share your perspective. Yeah, it's such an interesting question. And it's one that I, I you know, I knew you wanted to talk about this. And I, I, I honestly haven't thought much about it. I mean, of course, I've noticed the evolution and the change, um, you know, especially post-COVID. And just over the last six years there, it really was, like I said earlier, when I was talking about kind of the birth of embodied philosophy, there really was just nothing in this arena. And then suddenly there was, you know, there was a couple things. There was like Sutra Journal and, you know, Wanderlust was kind of doing some stuff, but of course, Wanderlust was more based on asana and kind of um, more new agey stuff. There really wasn't a lot of things out there and, and it shifted quite dramatically and then what I think has happened with post-COVID is that it has become um, now not something to be frowned upon to participate or to teach for an online pro- platform. And I mean frowned upon by more kind of traditional academic spaces. Like, you know, before, and, you know, I'm not just, I mean, I'm not an academic. I don't teach in academia. And, um, but I've heard many academics kind of reference this, that, you know, it was a little bit of a, of a failure, right? Like you might be adjuncting a little bit and then you're working for an online platform and you're slumming it. You're slumming it. Yeah. (laughs) With those, you know, slummy embodied philosophy, um, and other platforms such as, (laughs) um, uh, and you know, it's very interesting how I think actually one of my colleagues was mentioning this, that there has been a sense with some uh, 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 folks that uh, they feel like they missed out a little bit on the gravy train because now they're realizing that they, in order to survive, especially over the last couple of years, you really have had to had have some kind of connection to an online platform or have some sort of uh, way of teaching online. And so with having not cultivated those relationships with online platforms before, suddenly, you know, everyone wants to do it. And so, um, 
So there's been a shift in the way that that online platforms have been perceived by sort of the orthodoxy. And that's really interesting to me. And I think we'll see that um, continue. Um, and I think, especially with just the ongoing questions around COVID, if someone hasn't thought about that or, or, or found some way to teach online, um, they are at a disservice. And I, I, I mean, I'm sure you've heard about this, but there are many academic institutions that are having to, that are going bankrupt and having to close their doors. I know I probably shouldn't say names, but I know of a very, um, kind of famous school, famous for being quite progressive, um, in spiritual, uh, circles and it's having to kind of move completely online. So they're having to start completely from scratch, building an infrastructure to, well, maybe not completely from scratch at this moment, maybe they started, you know, a year ago. Um, but they are having to shift to online and are doing it quite late. And yeah, as the, as the online space gets more and more saturated with everybody wanting to teach their course, <laughs> uh, there's this really funny Instagram, uh, sort of gay liberty who, um, he does all these different, um, uh, kind of, uh, uh, filters on his face and they're different characters. And, and one of them is really funny. Um, I think his name is Brian Jordan Alvarez. Go follow him, please. If you're on Instagram, he, uh, one of this character is named Marnie and she's like a spiritual teacher. And she's always talking about connecting to source energy and, um, and how you are bliss and you are love. And it's basically a complete caricature of, of, um, of, you know, essentially spiritual, the spiritual community. And then at the end of every video, she says in a kind of really demonic voice, sign up for my class. And, uh, <laughs> and I feel like that is essentially what's happened, right? Everybody is just selling their wares online. And really the, the, I think that the future is in the refinement and it's also in collaboration. I, I from the beginning, Embodied philosophy was always about collaborating and, and building a community of scholar practitioners who would teach and work and converse and, and, and discuss and explore together. And I think that there's a lot of people who have this, my way the highway mentality, or they want to just build their own empire. There's a lot of that happening. And I just don't think that's going to work. I think it's a much better for everyone to collaborate and to work with and to support each other and to uplift each other's platforms rather than look at this sort of like in a competitive way. I think that that competition and that siloing of, of, of platforms is actually what's going to, to mean sort of um, is going to make the difference between which, which platforms survive and which don't. Um, yeah. That's uh, fascinating. Um, um, that, I'm just thinking through what you just said. Um, much, much of uh, so, I went from defending. Uh, I, I took the scenic route in life, which is great. But I defended my PhD in 2015, and I ended up staying in Toronto. And I remember being ever so mortified in 2016 because you know I'd meet scholars that I'd know or colleagues at a conference, and uh, yeah, I, I teach online. I you know I. <laughs> I, uh, I do. I coach and I teach and, um, 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 you know, open bracket. I'm a failed academic, close bracket. You know, this is the, this is the, <laughs> this is the, <laughs> yeah. but I've after, um, after I found a, a, a means of sustaining myself in 2016, then I started popping out the publications in 2017 and haven't stopped. And now I fully understand that, wait, I didn't see a model for it. But it actually is possible to be a connected, respected, productive academic, absolutely without a formal professorship. Yes, um, and you're a perfect example of that because you're quite. I mean, I've I've looked through those articles. You're prolific, and and think about all the time you probably had to write. You know, rather than doing all the admin mumbo jumbo that you would have had to do in a typical academic assignment. I think that that independent scholar kind of archetype is going to develop and be respected more and more, um, especially as, you know, academic institutions just aren't allowing for um, or not providing opportunities for PhDs. There's just less and less opportunity. Well, they're, they're, they're undergoing um, various challenges um, and there are no shortage of um, colleagues I know who have grad students of their own who really they feel deeply responsible for their fates, but they can't. I mean, they, no one can control the job market. No one, you can put your best foot forward and 
and you you know the story goes but but this um you know in a sense yes it would be less administration for department nevertheless i'm in a position of where i have to have some of my time to be billable hours so that everything else can be done pro bono essentially as opposed to having a paycheck come in and you research and it's part of what you're being paid for so there are trade-offs um i think for the right fit i would quite enjoy a professorship at some point um or at least make very good use of one um especially in terms of you know uh, one of the things i do miss is is uh, as i say corrupting the youth or teaching undergrads um uh but the odd session comes up and it's great to teach teach for a semester or two and and, and move on but what I mean to say is this journey of being, in essence, an independent researcher, independent scholar, and teaching online, uh, the stars just align, especially for COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, because then all of a sudden, everyone was online or had to be online. And the online medium, in the, whether probably largely based in reality, but certainly based in perception, the online medium was the slum. You were slumming it. But now the high rollers have to go to the slums and make their own enclaves, right? But now it's such that, look, it's not, yeah, there's lots of fast food online, but should the the proper chefs not also make offerings? Exactly. I mean, there's tons of people, probably a small percentage, but a great many people who can taste the difference and they're they're desperate for it they want they want high caliber online um content and if not the world's experts then who and who and so it's been this journey uh of seeing other scholars go online on platforms of helping sort of to coach behind the scenes of, of setting up online um um, enterprises. Uh, one of my favorite examples is Arti Don's Mahabharata podcast. Mm-hmm. She was a she's a tenured professor at the University of Toronto. Brilliant storyteller. Obviously sheepish at the outset, like everyone else. And now it's a a popular, um, a useful um, contribution to anybody who's interested in the Mahabharata. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, th- things really have changed, uh, mm-hmm. and COVID's just kind of clinched that. As for the the second part of your observations, yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I might be a little naive in that way, but I'm inclined to agree. Like, for example, on this podcast, I'll have um, Seth Powell come and talk about how amazing yoga studies is. I'll have Nick Sutton come and talk about the vision at OCHS. Mm-hmm. Literally, that's how I ended up teaching at the OCHS after the podcast. He's like, do you want to come teach? I'm like, sure, why not? Um, uh, now, we get to talk about how great embodied philosophy is. I really feel the need to keep the podcast in neutral space for various factions, various methods, various platforms, just to promote for the larger public what's available in terms of um, knowledge and practice in Indian religion. Um, so, yeah, I do. I do think. I do think uh, maybe counterintuitively to most. <laughs> most of the capitalists of the world, um, yeah, that, that collaboration and um, 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 purposeful do- division of labor, actually, I think that would be, um, uh, that would work very well with what I see. Uh, yeah. I mean, up. one of my visions actually is to develop kind of a consortium of these schools and to bring um you know, because there is sort of, you know, there's always a little bit of a sense of competitiveness or you're offering a course and then, you know, um, next thing you know, or vice versa, this you know, similar course is happening on another platform. And and there is this sort of sense of, there's a scarcity mentality, I think, that we all struggle with sometimes that, um, to you know, to varying degrees, depending on who we are, um, that there isn't enough to go around. But I think that there is. And I think that um, it's, you know, and I actually learned this from when I started in body philosophy, I was listening to all, all of these podcasts about developing, um, online audiences and, and strategies for, for building community online. Um, and that's really where I got kind of the, 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 the strategic side, the kind of business side of understanding, um, that helped build embodied philosophy. And I just noticed that all of these people whose podcast I was listening to, they were all supporting each other's work and they were all talking about how, you know, the sea rises all ships and how, even though someone is talking about a similar topic, 
doesn't mean that um, that they're in competition with one another. Actually, they found out the opposite. They found that by you know raising each other up, everyone did better. And so I I, I really have tried to remember that logic in 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 approaching embodied philosophy and really try to um, to do the same as what as, as what you're doing. That sort of we're all in this together and actually. Um, supporting and, and sharing each other's projects and voices is is better for everybody, especially yeah, and, for the people whose opportunity, you know, for people who we give opportunities to as well, um, who we house on our platform and who, um, who teach courses for us and who offer opportunity, who um, provide media in various ways. Well, the, 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 um, uh, the brands are, are different, right? The content might be similar, but the, 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 the methods, the brands are, are different. You may have um, an instructor who has their own following and they're on various platforms. I mean, there, there are various ways in which it does make sense. Like if if I promote, for example, Archie Don's podcast on this podcast, it doesn't mean I'm losing listeners. Exactly. It means my listeners love this podcast all the more now because yeah. I, you know, share this 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 jewel with them for the ones that are interested, obviously, in the Mahabharata or great storytelling. Um yeah, that's really cool. And also people want to listen to you, Raj. They want to hear your, you know, distinct take on things. And, you know, you talking about the piranhas versus, I don't know, Joe Schmo or Julie Schmo talking about the piranhas is going to have a different timbre and tone and, um, and personality to it. And so I think all, what you're saying is exactly right. I don't, I really don't like to use the word brand, although, you know, I never, I, I tend to not call embody philosophy of business. I call it an organization just because I, you know, I have this, I don't know, uh, <laughs> this personal struggle with Dwesha. There's this Dwesha yeah, there. Exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, it's, the, I, it's the personality. I want to say that over brand, even though I know brand is exactly what it is. Um, personality of these different platforms that people are drawn to. And, and just like with everything, you can like different personalities. You can hold different personalities in the same space and not have to feel like, Oh, well, this personality, I like this better. So that personality is now no longer of interest to me. It just doesn't generally work like that. I don't think. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, thankfully I generally silence, um, <laughs> silence my side while my guest is speaking. Otherwise all they'd hear is me giggling in the background. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate um, your giggles, Raj. Um, they, uh, uh, um, so I had this huge journey where uh, 2016, I, I rang in the new year 2016 with literally four pennies to my name and not American pennies, Canadian pennies, uh, max outline of credit, maxed out credit. And I'm like, I don't know. I defended in November. It's been three months later. I've had no funding. I'm like, what on earth? Like I'm, as far as I can tell, I'm hardworking and industrious and I'm penniless in one of the most opportunity-filled uh, cities in, in one of the greatest nations of the Western world. What on earth is the problem? Like, And that really was the push to entrepreneur and business really was a dirty word for me. Uh, sales, my God, sales was, you know, yeah. uh, these words, branding, I resented it. I yeah. really, I'm like, bro, what the hell's brand? What a pretentious thing. Branding, just be yourself. What do you, what's this branding? <laughs> <laughs> branding, what are you, you're branding yourself? What is this? But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's shifted, uh, it's shifted a great deal in that I do understand the need for much of that. I, 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 I was talking to, um, believe it or not, um, um, very different kind of journal, um, uh, the Journal of the American Academy of Religion. I had Amir Hussein on. Um, as my last guest, and he actually edited that journal from 2011 to 2015, I believe. And it's so funny, even even Amir Hussein for the flagship academic journal for religious studies, um, not even a decade ago, he's like, wait a minute, we need to make this prettier. Wait a minute, we want people to open it. Uh, how do we market this better? Yeah. Not to say any of that is at the expense of substance, quite the right. contrary. But I've come to understand that the name of a course, you know, Sacred Sound, doing a course now called Sacred Sound, it's not called, you know, um, whatever, you know, Mantra 101, right? It, people are more um, inspired by visuals, by titles, same content, same teacher. Exactly. And that's really important. 
That's a really yes. important part of what we do. I now understand uh, entrepreneurship or business in a way that I never have before, where I completely understand, at least for me, that entrepreneurship, a business, it's what it is. It's a sustainable way to serve. Mm-hmm. However it is you want to serve in the world, mm-hmm. you do it through the exchange of money so that you can be sustained to perpetuate that service. Um and so there's a bunch of baggage in the back of the brain, I'm sure. But uh, whatever. I mean, if somebody wants to sign up to uh, be my patron or pay my bills, I'm all ears. But until then, <laughs> yeah, entrepreneurship it is. No, I mean, I have struggled with that a lot, uh, you know, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, uh, because, well, partly because I think I had a lot of some scars from my early formative um, educational experiences in, 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 um, Marxist kind of theory camp. You know, I was, I identified as an anti-capitalist for a long time. And so, and then I, and, and I, and I didn't consider myself an entrepreneur for a really long time. I really did not want to think of myself that way. And because I, for me, I was doing it because I really wanted uh, a space that I felt like was missing. I wanted, I was an awesome, you know, after I left grad school, I was an awesome teacher and I wanted to talk about deeper topics and I couldn't do it in the context of asana teaching. It just didn't fit. People were coming for a sweaty, you know, vinyasa class. They weren't coming to talk about yoga philosophy. And so starting it really came out of a passion to forge a space that I felt didn't exist. And to me, that was not an entrepreneurial adventure. That was sort of an adventure born out of my own need to express um, and feel at home in the world, I really felt. And and I think that the best entrepreneurial journeys arise, you know, um, out of that kind of passion. And then it's sort of like, you know, in retrospect, you're like, oh, wow, I guess I, I guess I am an entrepreneur. But I had no business experience. I knew nothing about any, any sort of business strategy. I didn't go to school for business. I went to school for politics and philosophy, you know, (laughs) like I, so the business side of things was really something that I, I had to kind of discover and accept, um, ongoingly. And it's still, it's still a, a struggle. You know, the other day we posted something about, um, one of our new EPTV, uh, we just launched this, um, Netflix style service called EPTV, which we call the Netflix for contemplative studies, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and um, we did some original series, and one of them is Meta Meditation with this woman, wonderful woman, Onika Mays. And I put a preview up on Instagram. Uh, I don't usually handle the Instagram, but I, I've been doing these previews because I want you know our Instagram audience to find it. And then someone responded about how it was paradoxical that you know why. Where Onika, can I find your teachings for free? Of course, you can find her teachings for free. You just watch, you know, follow her on Instagram. But you know that that I still struggle with that. You know, with with the justification for charging for things and what my relationship is with the money making aspect of it. It's challenging, and it's you know, it's an ongoing inquiry into your own integrity. And and I think it just has to be uncomfortable like that because it is uncomfortable. And, and, um, and so for me, I've, uh, the, the business side of things, I still don't sit comfortably with it. And I'm, you know, really trying to learn as I go along, um, better ways also to internally structure the organization because embodied philosophy has, you know, 12 employees now, um, to internally structure the organization such that it reflects the outer contemplative values. And when you're really small, you know, having three or four people working, you just sort of fly by the seat of your pants. You just, you know, do, you know, sort of what comes naturally and, and everything just sort of happens and it's small. So, you know, it can work like that, but as it gets bigger, you actually need the contemplative principles and ethics and, and, um, organizational structures to support the work. Otherwise you end up falling into kind of, you know, um, uh, maybe not so productive, um, cycles of interpersonal drama and all of that sort of thing. And so, you know, there's so many angles to, to developing a new kind of, of business or money-making enterprise that is contemplative, that is also giving back to the community and that's really anchored in its own, um, 
integrity, like I said, and, and doesn't necessarily get sullied by capitalism because capitalism can sully pretty much anything if it's, if it's allowed to. Yeah. I really appreciate what you're saying. Um, may I share sort of where I've landed with all that with my yeah, own sure. Yeah. So as I said, I mean, I, I literally had this sort of uh, visceral, I went into entrepreneurship out of necessity and it really felt to me like, okay, what do I tell my colleagues now? I'm selling myself. Great. This is great. Um, but that, you know, I underwent this journey where for me personally, um, I'm much more comfortable with it than I ever thought I would be, if not fully comfortable with it most days. Uh, a couple of things shifted for me. I'm sure that process will look different for other people. Um, money is never an ends for me. Like money is always a means. Like money is never something to be pursued. Yeah. Money is something that empowers the pursuit yes. of education, mm-hmm. of sustenance, of, 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 of medical care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The huge brain changer for me is I now understand that money is Shakti. Mm-hmm. Money is Shakti, right? Money is energy, right? It, it, energy is the ability to do work. Energy is not an object, right? And the, 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 the slippery, the banana peel, right? The spiritual banana peel is when money becomes the thing that's being pursued. Yeah. Right. As opposed to the Shakti that empowers the pursuit of your mission, the pursuit of your Dharma. Yes, yes, yes. The, 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 the exchange of knowledge. When I first started out coaching, um, I would give stuff away a lot. I would, I've, I, you know, I now completely understand that unless and until someone actually puts their money into it, they don't quite put their energy, they're not as invested. Uh, into the process they're not on board when they're paying you 200 bucks an hour to hear what you have to say my god are they listening and will they do their homework because mm-hmm. you've yes. communicated the value yeah of the impact that they can expect that took me a, a, a took me some work to to sort of get in this space but i really see money as shakti yeah i really and, appreciate that sorry no please go ahead no, I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, I, you know, that's, I've, I've had uh, conversations kind of like this before where that's sort of where we landed, but the way you express it is really beautiful and, and quite simple. I love that idea of money is not the ends, it is the means um, uh, to follow the pursuit. So you're essentially saying that, you know, money is a, a, a force that allows you to pursue the thing in itself. Whereas, but it does seem that the, the unconscious cultural value system, right, of capitalism is that money is the thing in itself. Um, it's, the st- it's the substitute for the thing in itself when one lacks the, I don't know, perhaps the contemplative perspectives or the spiritual teachings to allow one to see the illusion of that, right? And so then we, whether we think we are or not, you know, uh, I think in, in this culture, a lot of people are motivated by the pursuit of money, even if they say they think they're pursuing something else, right? It's that there's, there's never this, there's never this fully satiated moment or fulfilled moment. Um, and that's what keeps the engine moving, right? In a way. exactly. So I guess it then, you know, begs the question of then what are the organizational structures that remind, you know, us to remember the, the pursuit and the goal and the, and the, um, uh, the true purpose rather than, or whatever our individual purpose is, rather than, you know, perceiving money as the substitute for that purpose. Yeah, it's, that's a really interesting question. I'll just maybe indulge the thought experiment a bit, and then we'll probably wrap up because we've taken enough of your time for one day. Um, you know, the, 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 the courses I offer, they're in exchange for money. I have not come across one person who's ever asked for their money back. And if they wanted it back, I'd happily give it to them because they understand and they recognize that what they've gotten out of the course is worth far more than the money that they paid into it. Mm-hmm. Right? Affordability is a different question. Right? You're always happy to accommodate somebody who's in need, of course. Um, but that is so that I don't have to worry about eating, housing, 
I don't have to worry about life's needs so I can focus on creating excellent content. I can focus on uh, being a prolific scholar pro bono, right? None of my scholarship is funded. Um, the real paycheck for me are the teaching evaluations. And the, 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 the bonuses for me are these emails that come from nowhere, from, from from a course that I did at Yogic Studies uh, a year ago, I'll get an email and say, wow, this really changed my perspective on this. Or uh, comments from the OCHS students or, or for clients who's like, you know, my, my life's changed. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. For me, like that is, that is the, the impact you've had. And that impact was empowered by the financial transaction as yeah. opposed to looking to the bank account to feel fulfilled uh enough of my pontificating for one day was there anything we've else really, we've really run the gamut in this conversation it's quite fun yeah without even trying and 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 this is only our second ever conversation apparently we only speak when we're, we're being recorded so <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to put an end to that soon <laughs> sure was there anything else that you wanted to touch on in terms of reaching out to you or embodied philosophy or you know yeah, I mean, I guess I would just close on on saying to especially your listeners, which I take to be a quite, you know, scholar heavy audience that, um, you know, we're always looking for new collaborations, whether that is through courses or conferences or writing for the journal Tarka. Um, and so we're always looking to evolve that community of, of scholar practitioners. And so if that moves you and um, you're looking for uh, that kind of a connection, please, you know, check out our website and, and reach out through the submissions uh, tab there. We'd love to hear from you. And then um, Raj has been uh, generous enough to let me share a coupon code, which he mentioned earlier, which is uh, uh, Indian Religions 25, which if you use on the Embodied Philosophy website, will give you um, 25% off any of our memberships. And that goes for the three tiers of regular membership or the digital Tarka membership. Um, so that's, that's what I wanted to share. Thank you very much for that kind gift. And uh, thank you for making the time to speak with me today. Thank you for having me, Raj. It's been such a pleasure. The pleasure has been uh, a pleasure, but all mine. Uh, thank you very much. So we've been speaking with Jacob Kyle, um, the founder and director of Embodied Philosophy at embodiedphilosophy.com. Feel very free to use the coupon code IndianReligions25 for a 25% discount on any of the subscriptions available there. Um, Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, and keep contemplating the fate of online education. Take care.